0: I will put my much Good afternoon and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown for December 2nd, 2020. My name is Tom Hollingsworth and I am your jovial host for this episode of our rundown where each week we meet and we provide you with a something about the news, but also a service that's near and dear to our heart, which of course is SNARK as a service. And the chief SNARK officer, uh, Mr. Stephen Foskett will be joining me today as my wonderful co-host. Stephen, thank you for being here. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving.
1: Thank you, Tom. It's good to be here. Uh, The tofurkey is roasting, the snow is falling, and um,
0: Slack is getting bought. So what more could you want from Thanksgiving break? Exactly. I mean, um, we took the week off. Obviously, uh, you know, we had a lot going on with uh, trying to get back to the way things were. But the good news is, is that the news didn't take a break over the weekend and uh we do have some great news stories but we're going to jump in to a little bit of our favorite segment called news or Nah, where we cover some of the quick hit news that eh, maybe doesn't need a whole bunch of discussion but we uh we definitely want to uh to to jump up there So, in case you were wondering whether or not Cyber Monday was actually a thing, Salesforce made the biggest cyber we'll call it Cyber Tuesday—purchase of all time. But the news started coming out on Monday. Um, They are going to buy Slack, the communications platform that pretty much everybody has started using for work. Um, It's going to cost about twenty-seven point seven billion dollars in a partially stock, partially cash transaction. Uh, If you haven't been keeping track in the news, Salesforce has been buying a lot of companies in 2020. Um, They are putting together a pretty interesting portfolio. Uh, The biggest part of this acquisition is going to be putting Salesforce directly in competition with Microsoft Teams. Uh, I feel like Teams is is one of the platforms that a lot of people have started kind of using as the, the direct competitor to Slack. So this should be a very interesting thing for them. Now, Steven, obviously a lot of people are talking about this, but we have our own unique take on this. Is the acquisition of Slack by Salesforce news or not? Nah?
1: Heck yeah, it's news. Uh, Slack, Slack is awesome. Um, but you know, I'm going to channel uh, my man, John Gruber here, who said uh, he sees Slack versus Teams, kind of like iOS versus Android or Mac versus Windows. I mean, Teams really is the Sort of windows of this category. Um, and Slack really is the, you know, back. I mean, it's the, you know, kind of uh, you know, a little bit quirky, a little bit stripped down, a little bit fun, you know, focused on the users. Um, you know, and uh, frankly, um, my biggest fear is that Salesforce screws it up. Um, full disclaimer we are paying Slack customer here at Gestalt IT. We are also a paying Salesforce customer. And of those two, uh, can even though Salesforce literally costs ten times as much, Slack delivers a hundred times more value. So I, I'm um I'm gonna say I'm cautiously optimistic that Salesforce won't ruin this thing because, please, Salesforce, don't ruin this thing.
0: It's pretty good yeah i am in the same boat i i am glad that if they had to get sold salesforce was one of the companies to buy it because at least they have a reasonable track record of not destroying things
1: yeah i mean look at heroku they didn't really destroy that so there's that um so uh turning our attention a little bit um <laughs> my favorite punching bag and yours Ajit pai is uh announced this week that he's leaving the fcc on january 20th 2021 um He's leaving along with uh, Michael O'Reilly, uh, whose renomination was canceled. Uh, Pi has been under fire for during his term for rescinding net neutrality laws in favor of telecom providers and generally being a big industry stooge. Uh, this will be the incoming president, uh, leave the incoming president with a two to one majority on the FCC, which is expected to reinstate net neutrality uh, before those empty chairs are filled. Tom, uh, departure of Pi, news or not?
0: Uh, Well, I don't really necessarily know that the departure of Ajit Pai was news. However, I am hearing reports that they are going to have to hire that giant Russian cargo plane to fly his Reese's coffee mug back to his old office um, because there's no forklift in America big enough to hold that thing. Um, Here's the deal. Ajit Pai was probably the most polarizing FCC commissioner in history. And essentially the way that he did it was by taking everything that every IT person in history ever told him and doing the exact opposite. The only thing that I will laud him for is opening up the six gigahertz spectrum band. And honestly, he did that going against every business interest that ever wanted that to be closed off. So in a way he was acting contrary to his own beliefs when he did that for some reason. I'm sure that that involved, well, um, a lot of discussion. But I am very happy to see the net neutrality rules being reinstated. I mean, every news story that talks about Ajit Pai leaving, a paragraph later is like, well, yeah, we're going to get back to net neutrality because it's a thing we need. And this whole zero rated content crap needs to go away. So, not necessarily unexpected news, but happy news.
1: Happy news indeed. Um, yeah, Ajit Pai, don't let the door hit you in the butt on the way out. Uh, I'm just sad that Jim Bridenstine is leaving NASA too, because he's honestly done a really, really good job.
0: Yeah. And uh, for those of you who are not U.S. viewers, uh, this is actually fairly common to happen during a transition between administrations. There are a lot of civil servants who uh, take this opportunity to uh, look at some future endeavors. So uh, this won't be the last uh, departure announced, but we'll we'll have to be cautiously optimistic to see who, who else is going to head out.
1: And one um, more see- thing on this, I'm sorry, one more thing on this with pie. Um I'm setting my watch to see how quickly he ends up at one of the telecom companies that he used to regulate.
0: I, I, I wouldn't set my watch because that's sure money. Um, but you, I think you're right, Stephen. Uh, I, I don't know if you know this or not, Stephen, but December is not only the month of Christmas, but on 2020, December is the month of AWS reInvent. Uh, the event will be going on over the next three weeks. And we had day one yesterday. And I think the biggest announcement to come out of this actually had to do with Apple. Um, Amazon is now going to be offering Macintosh instances to developers who are looking to create and test applications for macOS, iPhone, iPad, tvOS, and watchOS. How are they doing that? Well, the instances are actually running on Mac minis in Amazon data centers. Um, They're going to be running on the Intel Mac mini variants right now, which I believe is the last release of that was 2016 or 2017. Uh, But they are planning to move to the Fresh new hot Mac uh, Mini M1 early next year. Uh, I talked to a developer about this last night and he said that Amazon was finally offering Apple instances and he was giddy to the point where I think he ran home and was trying to fire one up late last night. Um, Stephen, Amazon's going to start renting you a Mac if you don't want to pay for one yourself. Is that news or not? Um,
1: honestly, I think it's totally not news. And I think that it's hilarious that the tech industry is so Mac obsessed that they're going nuts over this thing. Um, I mean, serve the home wrote an article about this, Patrick, no, (laughs) anyway. Um, (laughs) so this is this whoop de doo Okay. But that being said, yeah, it's great. And it's probably going to be useful for certain people, especially as you mentioned, developers who need to, you know, spin up a, a Mac. Uh, to me, the interesting aspect of this was the technical details, which is that they're backing it uh, with a uh, 10-gig Ethernet. Um, they're using Thunderbolt uh, to attach to storage. So this thing is going to be um, j- lightning fast. And these suckers have, I think, 32 gigs of RAM. So basically, these are some pretty cool Mac minis. Um, and speaking of Mac minis, I'm actually recording this on the M1 Mac Mini right now, um, which is uh, thrilling. But um, I, I gotta say, um, Amazon probably won't implement the M1 Mac Mini, and it's not an architecture thing. It's probably a memory thing. Um, you know, they're limited to 16 gigs of RAM, and uh, like I said, Mac, or, and and they don't have the gig or the 10 gig Ethernet. Um, I think that they're probably going to hold off until maybe the next generation Apple Silicon Macs come out. Because um, frankly, these guys, um, it's cool and it's super fast, but it's not, you know, news. So anyway. Yay, developers. I'm glad you can do this. There were way more important stories coming out of reInvent this week. Maybe we'll hit some of them next week. Um, And if you're interested in what's coming out of reInvent, just follow Quinny Pig. Um, His summaries are hilarious and on point and actually incredibly thorough. Uh, Just go to Quinny Pig on Twitter and you'll find out what's from reInvent. So uh, turning uh, back, uh, Tom, uh, speaking of Apple, um, Ars Technica is reporting that Apple patched a huge issue in the iPhone earlier this year and is just now releasing details. Uh, The vulnerability was in the mesh networking protocol that helps run airdrop between phones and uh, the kernel module was vulnerable to uh, one of our traditional favorites, a buffer overflow. And uh, crazy enough, it could be triggered without any notification, without the user doing anything. Because the driver was always on scanning for packets. Um, this was patched in iOS 13.5, and Apple is sure that most devices are secure now. They have that information in the tele- telemetry. Um, Tom, is this no big deal now that it's patched, or should we have gotten more news? Did Apple drop the ball here? What's going on?
0: I think Apple was quietly trying to sweep this under the rug so that nobody figured it out because the news about this really broke late yesterday. And I have seen a bunch of Wi-Fi engineers sharing this, you know, not only with myself but with other people. Here's the problem: it's a zero-touch bug. Nobody knew you could do this, and it was a buffer overflow. I mean, come on, that's that's pretty part and parcel. We look for those things just out of habit. It was that you could completely control the phone with no notification just by being in the area but close enough for airdrop and and lord knows that we use airdrop enough to mess with people like at big conferences if you by the way if you're at a big conference just turn airdrop off because you you don't want to be any part of this Uh, and that's the stuff that we do to our friends if i was maliciously trying to take over your phone and i had knowledge of this bug yeah this is news and and i think we're starting to see you know based on the last few stories that we've seen from apple security news here i think a lot of people are really going after the iphone and ios in particular Um, because it's just it has such a huge install base that if they can just get a good zero day on this, they have a lot of latitude to do a lot of things that will disrupt people.
1: Yeah, I'm with you. I I think uh, I'll just say, to me, the scariest thing about this, I mean, I've always been scared of things like the pineapple that can basically, you know, not hack your phone, but hack your communications just by walking by. Um, This was a pack your phone by walking by bug and oh my god that is terrifying yeah
0: yeah well thankfully they've gotten it patched we'll we'll have to see if there's anything else that comes out of it well that will just about do it for this episode of news or nah we're going to go ahead and move on to some of the big stories that happened over the last week or so Uh, probably the biggest story has to be the fact that amazon finally found out just how important their cloud service was to the rest of the world On November 25th, they started seeing some issues that were cropping up in the Kinesis data stream. Um, That's the API that they use for monitoring things like IoT devices. Now, it started getting bigger and affected a huge chunk of US1 East. Now, that started causing a lot of other incidental outages, including things like CloudWatch, um, Lambda. I don't know if you've heard of that or not. And uh, maybe even the health dashboard that they use to tell everybody whether or not AWS is actually running or not. Um, Now, here's the funny thing. I read the postmortem, which, by the way, is the most PR-friendly postmortem that's ever been created. And the trigger was the fact that they were trying to add capacity to Kinesis, and that caused their API to start polling at an extremely rapid rate, which uh, pretty much looked like a DDoS. And here's where it gets worse. If you don't define a service or a region instance in your service when you create it, guess where it defaults to? US1 East. Um, They eventually got the services restored, Uh, they rolled back the changes because that's how we fix things in the IT industry now, and uh, Kinesis was brought back under control. Here's the other thing that was really fascinating about this. The number of people who were saying, I can't vacuum my house, I can't ring my doorbell, my door locks don't work because US1 East is down. Stephen, are we shocked that AWS has this much invasion into our lives right now and that a simple, simple cloud outage could cause so much disruption? Or is this the fact that we have really started relying on the cloud too much, and Amazon really needs to do something about diversifying their service set?
1: Well, I think we're not shocked. I mean, like you and me and the people reading or listening to, you know, the rundown uh, probably are like, "Yeah, AWS runs everything." But um, I think the world should maybe be shocked, and maybe Amazon should get a kick in the butt. Um, as you said, the the one of the well. One of the crappiest aspects of this thing, if I can say that, is um that it also took down the service dashboard. So they couldn't even tell people that it was down. Um, Amazon, listen to me, run the service dashboard on somebody else's cloud. Just, just please. Um, you know, I'm sure uh, there should be like a, an industry consortium to like swap service dashboard service so that people can. Like not have this happen. Um, anyway, uh, that being said, it, it, that might not have actually helped because um, kinesis was actually the protocol used apparently to send service messages. So um, even if they had the service dashboard, somebody else. Even if, 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 anyway, it was it was crazy. Another interesting aspect was that this thing, yeah, it might have been triggered by um, adding the capacity. Um, but if you read deep into the uh, the postmortem, um, the underlying root cause was simply an operating system misconfiguration. Um, they didn't have the uh, operating system um you know, com- configured to handle enough threads, was it? Um, anyway, um, and they found that pretty quickly, but it like it like took them like twelve hours to get everything back up and running because it was such a storm. Um, anyway, this is really bad. Um, especially considering that it was right on the eve of reInvent. And also it was kind of hilarious that they didn't even mention this at reInvent. They didn't like, like, I mean, they didn't even make it. I would have loved to have a joke about it. Like, you know, hey, everybody, we're back online. Uh, You know, something like that. Um, Anyway, it was was crazy. It was bad. And it shows just how dependent we've become on Amazon AWS. And, um, you know, I think that's bad. I think even Amazon would agree that the world needs to be better about how they're architecting applications. The world needs to not be reliant on one cloud, on one region of one cloud. Um, I wouldn't be surprised, by the way, if Amazon implements a round robin for defaults or something like that going forward, Um, just because the, 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 the weight on US East 1 is just insane. I mean, that not only is it is it the default but it's the the primary choice of a lot of people and 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 that's a big problem i think for the industry it's a big problem for just regular people like you said like hey, hey my roomba doesn't work why doesn't my roomba work well that's because amazon misconfigured an operating system in virginia i mean it's yeah. like what um i don't know what do you think tom
0: I, this i mean every time we have a problem with a us east 1 Everything goes to hell. I mean, we we saw that like, you know, a decade ago when someone fat fingered a router upgrade or, or got impatient and took the whole thing down. And then all of a sudden, like Netflix went down. Anyone out there who's trying to crow to me to say multi cloud is the future. You should look at this and go multi cloud isn't even the future when I can't even get you guys to deploy on two different instances of the same cloud. Like, like you're right, uh, I, in in some of the articles that we're talking about this, I thought it was hilarious that, you know, we, we talked about the fact that the, the health dashboard was linked to this service. Um, Amazon quietly mentioned that there is a backup for the health dashboard. However, not many people at Amazon know how to use it, and it's very manual, and they hate it, which is why they never use it. And I'm like, why don't you host your dashboard on Oracle Cloud, because Lord knows Larry needs the customers, and I don't think it's ever going to have any performance problems. Um, oracle cloud's dashboard by the way is handled on an old 486 os2 warp machine because um, it doesn't really need to do a lot of status straight- sure. yeah. updates <laughs> yeah absolutely but, but here's the ultimate problem amazon has to has to fix their underlying infrastructure problems why does one api that is has it has a problem spawning threads on a process suddenly take everything down and not only that it wasn't like it was a, a flash outage this happened over the course of four or five hours it looked just like if if anybody's ever created a bridging loop in their network that's basically what it looked like one switch goes down then four switches go down then all of a sudden your whole network's out over the course of a few hours there has to be a better way to do this but we've seen this a lot with other providers like cloudflare and uh i can't remember the last time azure had an outage but they don't know how to contain these problems at least in an on-premises data center when something goes out the blast radius is very much contained. U.S. East One's blast radius is the whole country.
1: Yeah, it's it's pretty crazy. I, I know that the Amazon folks, Amazon has some of the best people in the industry. Um, I'm sure that they're horrified and embarrassed by this, and I'm sure that they're going to work on this. Um, like I said, it was a misconfiguration. Uh, misconfigurations like that can happen, and uh, I'm sure that Amazon going forward is going to not have this error happen again. But really, the, 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 the solution to this problem is for people to be smarter about how they deploy applications and not have it be re- re- relying on one region of one cloud. Tom, um, one of the things that we've been talking about here on the rundown is um, quantum computing and especially the impact of quantum computing on encryption, because one of the major concerns for the industry is that basically a quantum, uh, a quantum chip, quantum computer will be able to crack Uh, many of the encryption algorithms we use today. And as you know, uh, there's been a lot of work, a lot of great computer scientists and mathematicians working on um, quantum-resistant encryption. So IBM uh, announced that they've created an encryption algorithm that's safe for quantum computing. Um, Also, IBM has people who are way too clever when it comes to naming things. So the uh, cryptographic suite for algebraic lattices or crystals, which uses kyber and dilithium or uh, fictitious crypt- crystals, um, IBM has hardened this encryption scheme against uh, quantum computing power. Uh, the result, e- resulting equation is apparently too difficult to be cracked by this current state of, quantum, of, of, of computers or uh, what quantum computers should be able to do. Does this mean that we can have secrets again and that we're safe and we can just go home and forget about how quantum is gonna destroy all of com- cryptography?
0: Uh, first of all i do want to say that that the crystals algorithm which is has been submitted to nist and will soon be a standard uh it was one of the finalists um composed of kyber and dilithium star wars and star trek nerds can coexist peacefully in reality um so bravo to you guys for being able to sneak that into an official government standard um if you uh, are a fan of my conversations uh video if you go back and watch episode 9 and 10 and if you've already watched it please watch it again because it was great work uh if i say so myself um you know that the reason why quantum computers are so good at breaking rsa style encryption is because it's a factoring problem and we have always assumed that computers can only factor numbers so fast well then when it turns out we created a shortcut for factoring numbers everyone went oh my god the sky is falling So how do we fix that problem? Well, we just make the equations harder. And that's essentially what Crystals is doing. That's why it's using things like elliptical curve technology. It's making it much, much, much more difficult for even the Shor's algorithm Factoring problems to be able to crack this encryption. So that's the good news. We finally have at least a single quantum resistant algorithm doesn't mean it's perfect, just like we used to think that 56 bit DES encryption was the bee's knees and now we're up to what like AES 256 or or better in order to even feel remotely secure. The reason why, ultimately, is because every time we increase the processing power of anything, whether it's a quantum computer or traditional computers under Moore's law, those previously unsolvable problems become very much solvable. So I think that this is IBM just saying, hey, we proved that we can do this and we can definitely invalidate the research because, you know, Google was crowing about this whole quantum supremacy problem just a couple of months ago. But that doesn't mean they're gonna stop the research. So bravo to IBM for for putting this out there and saying, okay, test our work and make sure that this is valid. I think though, that the only people that really should care right now about quantum proof encryption are those folks that are telling me that Bitcoin is the future. Because if you based your currency on a cryptographic algorithm and quantum computers will shortly be able to invalidate that cryptographic algorithm, yeah, you might wanna consider Bitcoin 2.0. I don't know. Um, well, I
1: don't know what you're talking about with Bitcoin, but um, <laughs> <laughs> but in terms of uh, you know looking at uh, you know uh, general general encryption and uh, the requirements of uh, you know basically everybody on the internet every day, I think I think that's to me that's the story. The story isn't that this protocol or that protocol or quantum or even like you know spies and you know, spy versus spy and government agencies with quantum computers and all that. The story is everybody needs to understand that you use encryption every day, all day long for everything. And if you think US East one is important, um, (laughs) RSA encryption algorithm is more important. And um, without reasonable encryption, without encryption that works, um, you can't have anything. You know, we can't have our modern world. And um, so it's it's incredibly important. Um, I was actually following some of the, uh, you know, some of the algorithms that were being developed um, and support, suggested uh, as quantum resistant algorithms. And um, it's been a really interesting story. And also they all have really interesting names or at least most of them do. So that's kind of fun too. But, um, you know, the bottom line here is we need quantum resistant encryption, just like we, need, we needed, you know, um, <laughs> Pentium-resistant encryption, right? I mean, we need to be able to encrypt things, and it looks like we're going to be able to do that, and frankly, that's good.
0: Yeah, Yeah. and uh, if you'd like to learn a little bit more about how quantum computing works and how quantum encryption and uh, Shor's algorithm work, like I said, please make sure to check out uh, episode 9 and 10 of Conversations. We delve very deep into that. Um, it's, it's some of the nerdiest stuff that I've done. Speaking as the networking nerd, that's saying a lot. All right, Stephen. let's talk a little bit about some big moves in the tech industry. And I'm, I'm saying that quite possibly in the most literal way possible because during the recent fourth quarter earnings call HPE Hewlett Packard Enterprise announced that they are going to be shifting their headquarters location from San Jose, California, to deep in the heart of Houston, Texas, the Houston headquarters was already built and there wasn't even time for the paint really to get dry on the walls back in March before everybody got sent home because of COVID. And so there was a lot of talk about whether or not they were even going to use the headquarters building and how this is all going to work. And Antonio Neri basically said, all right, all of the HPE execs, we're moving to Houston, Texas, and our existing headquarters location in San Jose, California is going to be the new home of Aruba, a Hewlett Packard Enterprise company. We're gonna move them from Santa Clara up to this new building. Now I found out also that HPE, or I'm sorry, HP Inc, which is the consumer side of HP, when they divested both of them, also moved to Houston, Texas here recently, which uh, is also the former home of Compaq, which became a huge component of HP back in the day. Uh, now, Stephen, you had a great Twitter thread about this yesterday. You were talking about some of the impact of, of what this means for people and, and why they could possibly be doing that. So I wanted you to kind of jump in and give us your take on why you think HPE uh, pulled up stakes in Cali and went to Texas. Yeah.
1: So um, I will say that um, this has everything to do with a number of different factors. Um, obviously, the pandemic is one of them. So we'll hold that thought. Um, there's also a financial aspect to this taxes and regulations and things like that. Um, and frankly, um, you know, there's also a, uh, sort of a corporate culture kind of aspect here. So I think it's important to remember that HP is perhaps, and I say that HP meaning original Hewlett Packard, OG HP is perhaps the quintessential Silicon Valley company. I mean, it's literally the garage in Palo Alto, where they started this company. I mean, the garage is still there. I've been there. Um, and, um, and HP has always been, um, you know, if you'll pardon me for getting a little nostalgic. I mean, HP was the greatest of the Silicon Valley companies, too. Um, I was a customer back in the 90s. Um, I was a dedicated HP customer because their stuff was so good. But more importantly, their people and their service was so good. They exemplified to me what a Silicon Valley company was supposed to be and what an enterprise company was supposed to be, um, in a way that IBM never did. Um, and frankly, HP was uh, just a phenomenal Silicon Valley company. But over time, the company changed. I mean, like you mentioned, you know, the acquisition by Compaq—oops, I mean of Compaq—was a big deal um, for HP. And um, frankly, uh, you know, there have been many acquisitions since then, including the acquisition of Aruba which ended up carrying a lot more weight than you might think. So from my perspective, this move reflects sort of the new HP, uh, the new HPE. Again, remember they split. HP Inc is like basically the client products and the printers and you know laptops and stuff like that. HPE is the enterprise side of the business, which is kind of the side of the business that I care about. Um, and uh, you know, as you said, HP Inc. Um, it made sense. You know, that it would be Texas. Um, you know, Texas-based. Uh, but of course, HPE is is global. They're a big company. They've got offices all over the place. Um, you know, they've got headquarters-ish in many different cities. Um, you know, North Carolina, you know, Colorado, Fort Collins. I mean, HPE is a big, big company with a lot of locations. But um, you know, the heart was always in Silicon Valley and they recently, um, you know, they consolidated in uh, Palo Alto about, uh, you know, five, 10 years ago, um, vacating the space incidentally that is now part of the Apple donut. So the Apple spaceship landed on the HP yeah, campus in uh, Cupertino. Um, then they built a new campus uh, up by the bay. Um, and it looks like that's where they're going to consolidate next um, in the Silicon Valley area. So sort of, that's the tour of what we're looking at here. So this is a big company, they've got campuses all over anyway. Um, I think that frankly, the management took a look at the pandemic and the tax implications and said, hey, um, you know, we've got a lot of people working from home. A lot of people are going to be working from home. Um, maybe we need to consolidate our real estate. Maybe we need to consolidate our offices. Maybe we need to revisit how many offices and desks, like literal desks we need and, um, you know they came to the conclusion that a global um you know distributed workforce didn't need to have a headquarters in the most expensive real estate on in the planet um in Palo Alto um you know that's why they moved over near Milpitas and that's you know why they consolidated um you know for that reason um and i think going forward frankly they don't need all those office spaces um and it's good that they're keeping that nice lovely new building in California and they're gonna have everybody there. Um, but I think the real driver for this is really um, more uh, from the CFO office instead of you know the, the the you know what you might think. I mean this is you know Texas is an extremely business friendly state in, in that it has lower re- less regulations, uh, friendly courts, lower taxes. and a company can simply move their um, headquarters to Texas. And save a lot of money that way. Um, also, Texas and Houston, frankly, has much much cheaper cost of living. Uh, you know, cheaper real estate, cheaper employees. You know, if this is a company that employs, you know, literally millions of paper pushers, paper pushers are cheaper in Houston than they are in Palo Alto or San Jose. Uh, a lot cheaper, and uh, that's a really good move for the company. You know, it saves them personnel costs. It also saves them taxes. It saves them a lot. And um, you know, and this is not something that HPE is the only company doing. Um, a lot of companies are looking at relocating out of, out of Silicon Valley specifically. And frankly, I don't blame them. I think a lot of people like to look at this as some sort of political thing or that there's some sort of, you know, California's bad or something. I don't think it's like that. I think that it's just a simple calculation where you look at it and you say, do we really want to be located where everything is extremely expensive? Employees are extremely expensive. Employees have to drive two hours each way to get to work, um, or do we want to be located in a place like Houston? I used to live in Houston. Um, it's it's incredibly cheap to live there. There's you know millions of I mean it's the fourth largest city in the country, but um, you know it, it's a great place to live and work. And and so I think that they kind of came down on it and from a very practical standpoint. But you know that's kind of how we got here. I think that's the message that we should take away is that this is part of an overall process that's been impacted by the pandemic and also by you know sort of CFO kind of factors. Um, but I think it was really interesting that HPE's announcement of this came in the form of a bland corporate statement and a personal and interesting blog post by someone <laughs> that you and me are very familiar with, Mr. Kirti Mokote from Aruba. His blog says a lot more to me than anything. And I think that having Kirti's domain in San Jose, remain in San Jose and having that be basically the most, the fastest growing, the most dynamic, the most interesting parts of HPE and having him be so present, and Aruba be so present in the branding, and having Aruba take over that office, um, we could be seeing something, a very interesting corporate dynamic happening here. And I'm gonna put my cards on the table. Curity takes over the company, HPE spins out a bunch of stuff that they don't want anymore, and there's gonna be a new HPE, and it's gonna be in San Jose, boom.
0: I think that's fair. And and to be honest with you, Kirti is the one who kind of touched off this entire discussion back in March and April when he said something to the press about, you know, I don't necessarily know that we're even going to be opening up any more offices in Silicon Valley because of the cost of rent. And we might we might do something with the ones that we've got, and the whole tech industry lost their freaking minds. And now, six and a half months later, seven months later, Kirti looking like the the sage that knew what was going on. And and I think that you're absolutely right, Stephen. I'll 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 go even further than this. That building in Santa Clara that Aruba occupies now is a lot more valuable as an asset for sale than it is an asset to be held. And I'll 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 go one further. Um, I would not expect, uh, or I'm sorry, I would not be shocked to hear Palo Alto Networks buying that building within the next year because they that it's right behind their campus. They've been expanding like crazy. They want to move their teams closer. Uh, I I think that they probably, if if they don't already have an offer, I'd be shocked. But I think what you're going to see is there's a lot of people who are going to be doing a lot of soul searching about whether or not they even need to have a corporate office. And if they do decide they need one, is there a reason for it to be in Silicon Valley? If we're going to rip the bandaid off, it might as well happen in 2020 because Lord knows we've ripped off another uh, enough other band aids. So this is not the last of the big tech moves. It's also not the first. But I don't know if it's the biggest. I can't wait to see who's going to be coming next. All right, Stephen, that should just about do it for this episode of the Gestalt IT Rundown. We want to thank each and every one of you for joining us this week. Um, remember that we will be uh, coming to you every Wednesday um, around 1230 Eastern Time uh, with more great news and analysis. And like we said, just a little bit of the, our favorite kind of snark. Um, Stephen, if people want to check out some of the stuff that you're working on and doing, uh, where can they go?
1: Well certainly gestaltit.com is a great place to go. Uh, You can also catch my podcast, uh, Utilizing AI, which is just at utilizing-ai.com. You can uh, learn about enterprise uh, applications for artificial intelligence there. Um, And of course, you can follow me on the Twitters at S where I share a bunch of stuff and sometimes make comments and, you know, good place to connect.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And if you want to check out some of the stuff that I've been doing for gestaltit.com, you can head over there, just search for my name. Um, you can also check out our conversation series on YouTube where we talk about some interesting technology articles and um, you know, kind of go into depth there. But uh, for the rundown, you know, you can always follow us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash You can also consume this as a podcast. If you're the kind of person who likes to listen to us talk about the news while you run every morning, please do so. Uh, leave us a rating, uh, let people know how awesome we are. And, and that really helps us out. Uh, But we'll be back next week, uh, probably with some AWS news and and whatever else happens in the the final month of 2020. Uh, But for now, for Steven and for Tom, thank you for tuning in and we will see you next week on The Rundown.